Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 3, Chapters 9 and 10 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 3, read by Baird Brucher. Chapter 9 Lost in the Desert Our huge Campbell train assembled outside the palace, much bigger than the humble cargo we had arrived with. Isaac walked down the line with his list of treasures of silk, tapestries, pepper, spices, silver, and the carefully packed clock. Then there was the baby elephant. Harun insisted on presenting Carl with it. We couldn't refuse. That was the joke Isaac had frowned over on my first day there. I was in charge of the elephant. How were we to travel with this beast? Surely I was being punished. They were blowing horns to announce our farewell. A crowd had turned out to see this parade, and I wasn't even sure where our train ended and the onlookers began. Ali came out to send us off. Una was with him walking in a crouch, like a dog used to being beaten. Ali seemed irritated by her presence. Now you are. Here by three, he said abruptly, and gave her a little push toward me. Where is Deirdre? Una asked, her eyes darting from Ali to me. Ali shook his head and waved for the camels to set off. She is still resting and recovering. She will follow you tomorrow. Una fell to her knees. Then I will stay with her and we will both go tomorrow. Ali rolled his eyes and pulled at her. It is time to go. Your train will be slow. It will be easy for one of our men to catch up tomorrow with Tiedra. Don't delay. But my daughter. Your daughter is very well. Farewell to you, I said. Una started to tear at her clothes. I can't leave my daughter. Ali grabbed Una by the shoulder and pulled her up. Be at peace, woman. He let go of her. Be still. You are being foolish. There is nothing to worry about. It would be easier to bring one woman tomorrow. Two women might as well be an army. You are only causing delay. May Allah be with you and farewell. He waved his arms, and the servants prodded the camels and the great beast, and we headed out of the city. Una stumbled with us, in a daze, looking back, turning right and left wildly, looking everywhere for a glimpse of the missing girl. Onward we moved, and her feet went forward with us as her head and body jerked like a fish being pulled on a line. I was distracted by too much at first to give her the comfort I should have. Somehow, we would have to take the beast onto a ship over the sea. I was not happy about that. I thought we should have followed the Frisian trade route northerly instead of to the west coast. But our travel papers and instructions were rigid, directing us the shortest way. Once we passed the gate of the city, the road was a secret in the sand that only our guides knew. And we had no choice but to follow. Twenty camels and drivers, slaves, an elephant, a woman, and a thin black dog 
that ran out of the gate after us, who barked and danced at our heels. The first night we stopped at an oasis. I dreamed of Rosa calling, Natalia, Natalia! I awoke to hear Una's muffled crying. When she started to set off, she asked, Shouldn't we stay here and wait for Deirdre? Isaac only said, She will catch up. We are slow and they will be swift. We lumbered across the desert, to the next oasis. The closer we drew to it as night came, more soft noises came from Una's throat. When we were settled, there was the sound of hoofbeats. Una jumped up, peering into the twilight over the purple desert. Two men arrived on camels and handed Isaac a scroll, speaking a few words. They did not dismount and rode quickly back into the night. Una fell to her knees and put her hands to her throat. She said in a gasp, Where is Deirdre? Isaac read the scroll and deliberated. I stood beside Una and put my hand on her head. Isaac said, Musa is marrying her. Una's mouth gaped. What does that mean? Isaac grimaced. He turned to her and took a deep breath. Be at peace. Musa loves Deirdre. It is he who paid for her surgery. At the last moment when she was leaving, he begged her to stay and marry him. That is a great love, dear woman. Do not upset yourself. You will treat her well. Una fell forward onto her hands. Why didn't those men take me back with them? They are swift messengers. They aren't going straight back to Baghdad. They have errands to run. Please be at peace. Then we must go back. You must take me back. Isaac threw the scroll on the ground. We have travelled too far. We cannot go back. All will be well. Stop upsetting yourself. Una stayed frozen on the ground a long while. I knelt and put my arm around her. The God who has taken care of her will provide for you. We settled down for the night. From the desert came a band of native herdsmen. They joined us and shared goat meat and flatbread. They plucked a stringed instrument and beat little drums as they danced. I clapped along and let my mind go blank. But when I looked at Una, who gazed stricken into the fire, my heart broke for her. I had the Natalia dream again, and awoke with a start as the sun was rising. I thought I had heard the distant cry of a shrill bird. When I awoke, I felt something on my finger. It was Una's ring. She was gone. I stumbled over my words and gestured wildly to keep our guides from leaving, while Isaac tried to call me, but the more I argued that we had to look for Una, the less they seemed to understand my broken words in their language. They broke camp hastily, while I followed behind them, shouting at their backs. Isaac beckoned to the native men who had joined us the previous night, and shushed me while he spoke a few words to them. They nodded and rode off. They will look for her. We must go. That was all. As we rolled off, I realized the black dog was also gone. I thought that I could be able to write of Una's happy return to our native land and complete the tale of her harrowing journey. But whatever happens to her, her story will not be written. 
We could see the old wall of Jaffa from a long way off. I turned and scanned the horizon for a sign of Una, but I knew we would leave her behind. I should have offered the men a reward for bringing her back to us. I could only pray for her. As we approached Jaffa, we passed by farms of date palms, and we stopped at one. They gave us a hero's welcome, and quickly spread the table with bread and meat and little cups of sweet date liquor. I drank too much in the hot sun and felt weary, surrounded by the lush farm with its fountain, at which the great beast drank its fill and sprayed its back from its trunk. My legs felt very heavy and my head light, as if they were pulling apart. A young man approached me, his eyes wide with concern, hesitating. Are you well? I shook my head and found my whole body shaking. I felt I was going to burst into sobs. He brought me a cup of water and sat close. Finally, I told him about Una. A desert people will find her. They are good people. But I will not know. And what will I tell her brother? He put his arm around me. No matter how awful her story seems, she has lived an adventure few could know. And she chose this. But she chose to run away in the moment, and then what? If she regrets it, there is no place for her to turn. And what of the will of God? God's will is to bring us peace in our hearts. She will fulfill her destiny. People's choices arise, sometimes strong and good, sometimes wrong and mad, and they choose because they are not at peace. Some find peace only in death. She will fulfill her destiny when she finds peace or dies. But she will find peace. And what shall I tell her brother? A few tears fell from my eyes as he deliberated into his cup. He put his hand on mine and said, Say that she has the heart of a lion and the will of a wild horse. She rides the storm like a soldier of thunder. She will survive. I gazed at the bronze ring on my finger with its incised cross. I wish she had kept it as an amulet to keep Christ with her. She was alone now. But I felt she had a soul that was stronger than despair. Chapter 10 Burdens Arriving at the port, a difficulty arose. We had to get the elephant onto a ship. There was no ship in port that could hold its weight. There was much debate over what to do. We could wait for a great ship to be built, which would take many months. First word had to be sent to Harun for permission and money to do it, then lumber from Lebanon had to be obtained, etc., etc. Isaac decided we would continue around the coast of Africa to Carthage, where he knew they had great ships. I felt my shoulders slump in resigned exhaustion. Since Una had left, the elephant had become a vexation. We set our pace to the great beast that was the burden of our journey. At times it stopped for no reason and would be pushed against its leathery hide to no avail. At other times it took off at a trot and the handlers ran shouting to keep up with it. At such times, Derek turned to me and said, 
Behold, the caprice of power. The beast required 20 gallons of water a day, and it rarely slept. So we too barely slept and kept moving day and night. Isaac spoke little to me after Una left. I think he felt some shame that we had lost her and didn't try to find her. And now that Derek was lucid and speaking to me of our lord, Isaac kept more of a distance from both of us. So we passed through the vast desert, and I focused a strong dislike for the elephant, as if it were the cause of any delay, which at any rate it often was. I felt impatient to return, and the length of the journey was the elephant's fault. I hated its gait, its tiny twitching tail, its unpleasantly wrinkled grey skin, and its sickly smell. And it was growing. It was no longer an adorable baby, but a hulking adolescent with a voracious appetite. Darek divined my feelings. He is worth some pity, being marched far from his garden home. His power controls us, but he too is controlled and without a choice. His only recourse is caprice, because he has no choice. Learn this lesson. About the mighty. Darek was trying to address things he had overheard me discussing all along. I only dimly perceived his subtle words. At night when we camped, for our two short periods of rest, I thought about the desert. It is always the desert that exile is compared with, that the white martyrdom is likened to. Our ancestors and the Anchorite ideal fled to the Egyptian desert to sit on poles for years, to live in caves and sit in prayer until their arms rotted and fell off. Where is Egypt? It must have been connected to this desert we now traveled. This sun, this glaring horizon, this thirst, was their penance for us all. What did they seek in exile? No. I have seen both the kind of cities they fled, and this barren landscape they escaped to, where they sought this one thing, to forget. To forget noisy markets and bitter wives, to forget wily landlords and greedy councilmen, to forget anxious mothers and demanding fathers, to forget crops and livestock, money and books, even books, to forget everything but God. I wondered if there were any place left of real exile. The desert was well-travelled and dotted with oases. Cities thrived where I never knew they existed. Everywhere men had marked territory, mapped roads and planted their crops. The islands around Iona, too, were filling up with monks seeking isolation. The old days of living off the wilderness were over. The stars hung as big as lakes of fire in the sky. Under that sky, as we quieted down and watched the last of the glowing embers, I thought, I could not forget this sweet, sad world. And we did get to Egypt. I saw papyrus growing on the banks of the Nile. Darek told me of the anchorites, such as Simon Stylites, and here was where they had fled too. Egypt was once ruled by pharaohs, then by Rome, and now by Baghdad. 
unlike the new cities of X or Baghdad, Alexandria is a thousand years old. But it wasn't dirty like Rome. Its gypsum-faced buildings still gleam white, a pearl on the Mediterranean. We stayed some weeks there. Derek and I visited holy places where the early bishops and church fathers had lived. He noted some of the swirling designs of the buildings, inspiration for designs in the great book that must have begun by now. That is no longer ruled by Christian Rome, I said to Derek regretfully. You are too absorbed in these questions. We are not concerned with the power struggles of the proud and mighty who think they control everything. They control nothing. We are children of God. Simon Stylites didn't think about who believed themselves to be lord over Egypt. He had but one lord. There were miles to go from Egypt to Carthage. I tried to talk to Isaac about the point of view Derek was introducing to my mind. He turned to me at night as we were retiring and said, Now you are a monk, and I can't draw you out as I did. You're shut up in the monastery now. Not at all. We are still friends, I said. But he shook his head. Derek was especially pleased to go to Carthage, birthplace of St. Augustine. We found his house and stood in the very garden in which his conversion took place. We prayed together there in joyful solemnity. One afternoon we stopped to see how the elephant was doing, in a pen that had been quickly built for it adjoining an old stone wall. Something darted at our feet, and the elephant reared with a trumpet call. It was a mouse. See, see how the mighty must fear the small, Derek said. He knelt down and held out his hand. With a bent gait, the mouse approached him, took a slow step onto his hand, and bit him. The way the mouse lurched away, I knew something was wrong. We sat together, and soon Derek drowsed. I must rest longer, he said. I swallowed a lump in my throat. We stayed. He shivered violently, and I lay him down with my cloak folded under his head. The others saw what had happened too, and took turns giving him sips of water. His thirst was great. He motioned for me to bend my ear to his lips. The only power is salvation, and I am prepared. There is only one thing in life. To be ready for death, you should care for nothing else. See how the small... Overcome the mighty. Even Harun should fear a little mouse. The fear of death consumes the powerful. There is more glory in fearing the Lord and not fearing death. Yalla. Do you not know? It is death that makes us all equal. No man is Lord, for death comes to all and levels the field. He breathed heavily, and the seizures began. I tried to hold him still, and we rocked. The saliva foamed between his lips. The others began to pray, the heathen in their tongue and Isaac in his. I held him fast, and he went limp and died in my arms. I cleaned his body, and we wrapped him in his cloak and put him on the cart. 
to take him to be buried at the nearby monastery. The monks there gave him a good burial, and chanted well, and I chanted through my tears. I hated the elephant more than ever, as it was goaded onto the great ship. The sea passed before me. I remembered how I felt when I first was on the sea, leaving Napoli, that I was leaving myself behind. I had a feeling on the shore I would find a shell of myself that I would step into and re-inhabit. Yet I knew this could not be. Would that former Kellach even recognize himself now? Perhaps I had changed, as Isaac said, because on our return I was not interested in fooling proud bishops with the gilded mouse, as we had done on our initial journey. At any rate, we stayed less with bishops and more in monasteries, which suited my frame of mind. The monks were interested in learning Roman-style chants, and I taught them what I had heard. We told them of Baghdad, the Nestorian brothers, the great bones on the Grecian coast. I did not really want to hear news of Karl, who was now being called the Great, or Charlemagne, since he was crowned emperor. I only knew he had not taken yet another wife, which pleased me. Some of the monasteries had received letters from Alcuin, and they shared those with us, which was a comfort to me also. On this journey through the great forests and along fields and vineyards, I felt my whole life was only travel, and I couldn't tell any more if I were on my way to or from, whether I was arriving or leaving behind. I had shed companions along the way, shed something of my youth, so that I was leaving behind a past that was already fading in memory. Yet I had to remind myself I was returning to my only home, and that I had to be ready to resume my life or take on my new life as a monk, and that my travels would somehow, someday be over, though that seemed all but impossible. We continued to X. We arrived in a light rain on a warm day. The elephant attracted a parade to the palace. We entered the courtyard and made circuits around it. Carl and all his laughing children came out to the clamor. We stopped and the handlers managed to get the elephant to kneel before the king. Isaac spread before him the silks and spices, and I showed him the water clock. I am well pleased with the gifts of my brother, the Emperor Harun, Carl said, beaming. The children climbed on the elephant's back while she docilely knelt. She was taken to her new home in the zoo, and after a wash-up and rest, we joined the court for a feast. We feasted, but I took no notice of what I ate. I felt the absence of Alcuin, who was still living in Tours, and my dear Liutgard. As the feast ended, Karl rose and extended his hand toward me to rise. Our young monk soon returns to his home far away on the remote holy island. He will not go empty-handed. On this journey, he had as his companion a venerable monk who died, having survived the terrible raid on Lindisfarne. 
Much treasure was lost to the Northmen that day years ago. So we ask that Brother Hjallach take with him silver from our smiths to Lindy's farm to restore their loss. I bowed, not entirely happy. Lindisfarne, on the east coast and somewhat north, was not exactly on my way home. But there was no turning down the king, of course. I lingered for two weeks while the journey was prepared. Four horses were to carry the silver treasure of chalices, cups, plates and crosses, as well as our supplies. Soldiers were to accompany me. We would travel west to the coast of Frankland. The night before we left, I sought Isaac in the courtyard to say goodbye, and sat by him on the bench where I had often sat with Lutgard. Once again, it was late summer. Once again the flowers were going to seed and a few leaves had turned and fallen into the fountain, which was mossy and seemed dim compared to the sparkling fountains of Baghdad. Without hesitation, I put my arms around Isaac and pressed my cheek to his. Farewell, my friend. He gave my back a firm slap. You will do well wherever you go. The next day we set off through the deep woods. The soldiers sang marching songs. Sometimes we made camp in the woods, and other nights we were welcomed on an estate. After two or three weeks, there was a storm in the night. We huddled in our tents against the wind and slashing rain. When we rose, we found our path indistinct for the fallen leaves and branches. The soldiers acted confident about the way, but after we had walked the better part of the day, it was clear we were lost. The woods loomed silently all around us. We stopped, for a few moments just as silent, looking at each other. A fine mist rose, with a shiver in the air. The men began to argue about which way to go, whether to go forward or try to retrace our steps. They seemed about to come to blows when we heard a noise approaching of horses and voices. A band of men, women, and children appeared through the trees. The men, with long hair and beards, were riding, and the women and children walked alongside. They seemed to be a group of two or three families. What tribe are you? One of the men asked as they stopped their horses. We are soldiers of the Emperor Karl, and a monk going to Britain, said our leader, a bluff duke named Antony. The other soldiers posed to reveal their weapons. The man waved his hand. We are not armed. We can take you to where the road is visible. You are well off the path. It will be night when we get there. The soldiers looked to Antony. We had no choice. I was happy to join them. We pressed on together, the children singing. The soldiers smiled at their songs. When we stopped for the night and gathered around the fire, a good road now beside us, I remembered the people of the desert who had welcomed us with music and dancing. We shared food and beer and made merry. Then we slept soundly in our tents, perhaps all the more soundly for the beer. The next morning I heard a cry and came out of my tent. The band was gone, and so were our horses. Antony swore and pulled the tents down onto the sleeping soldiers amid confusion. Fools! Shit! Shit! Get up, you bastard idiots! Oh, those bastards I should have known! 
I had my suspicions. I let you decide. Look what you have done! The men scrambled out and lined up while he shouted and blamed them. Look to see what is missing! They made an account, and a thin young soldier, quivering with fear, said with hesitant optimism, They left the silver, sir. Only the horses. Nothing else is lost. Antony took a deep breath and calmed himself. All right, then. We have the silver. We'll carry it. I was not so mollified. Carrying the heavy silver and all our gear would be nearly impossible. Can't we just leave the silver? I asked. Antony shook his head, surprised. Of course we can't leave the silver. He can't carry all this, I said. We'll leave the tents and the keg of beer. We all hoisted the loads on our backs. It was miserable. I didn't curse the band that stole our horses, but cursed the king who had put so much store in those riches we were forced to carry. We thought that at least we would soon arrive at some great estate from which we could requisition horses. He had that authority. But this road was a military road, built to make straight for the coast first by the Romans. It did not lead to any great estate, just a few outposts fallen into ruin. We marched the whole way to the coast, sleeping exposed to the nights, with no marching songs of humor in quiet misery. When we arrived at the coast, at a village at last, we hired a boat to get to the monastery which was on the sea. Most of the soldiers would stay and wait for the others to return, and four of them would accompany me. I was exhausted and took little note of the voyage. The soldiers were mostly sickened by the chop of the waves. It was yet more burden, but I willed myself not to become ill. The monastery was perched on an outcropping off the coast, a few buildings of wood and stone. Damage from the heathen raid was still visible on the blackened walls, while some new construction stood out. When we beached on the rocky inlet, a bell was struck, and the monks ran from their activities into the monastery. It seemed this was a precaution in case of attack. Two monks came to look at us from over the low cliff, and Antony called up to them. We come not to take your treasure, but restore it. We are from Karl Rex. The monks quickly came down and helped us carry the treasure to the monastery. We were shown the guest house. The abbot himself, rather than greet us in his office, came to the guest house to thank us. The cellarer came and took the soldiers to the kitchen to eat, while I remained with the abbot. Because so many monks had been killed during the heathen raid, the abbot was young, perhaps only a little older than me. He was square-shouldered, broad, freckled, his big hands hairy. He had an uncertain look about him, having been thrust into his office. I knelt before him, and he put his hands on my shoulders. His hands smelled like milk. I have terrible news. Your master scribe Derek accompanied me on a long journey. But he died before he could return. He died in Christ. He bade me rise, and we prayed. We will have a mass for him. There were tears in his eyes. He was like a father to me. He saved my life. We held each other, as I realized how young he really was. He had only been a boy during the raid. Thank you for bringing us such treasure from Karl Rex, 
It will go a long way toward replacing what was lost. If only it could bring back our good brothers. It is a great loss that nothing can restore. You have had a long journey. Won't you stay some weeks and rest before going on? I thanked him and said I would. I added, I'd like to take a bath. He gave me a puzzled smile. We bathe the last Thursday of the month, when we renew our tonsure. I was disappointed. I was used to lovely, frequent baths in Persia. Can you scribe? he asked. When I nodded, he said, Would you serve as my secretary while you're here? There is so much I need to do. Certainly. And after you've eaten, if you would, go to the scriptorium and copy a few lines so that I may judge your hand. That seemed unnecessary, but I assented. The bell was struck, and we went to the refectory for a meager meal of whey, cheese, bread, and vegetables. After all my fine feasts, it was hard to swallow the dry bread and mushy greens. The abbot himself showed me to a desk and chose a psalm for me to copy, which I did while the brothers chanted in the church. Their voices wafted to me, a rolling sound, lending rhythm to my work. I spent the afternoon at it, working as patiently and neatly as I could. Before Camplin, I returned to the abbot with the page. He frowned over it. What sort of script is this? The script of the court of Karl Rex. It is compact and efficient. His shoulders twitched. It may do for a secular court. Did you notice the script you were copying from? Could you not imitate it? I could try. Perhaps, though, for your correspondence this would be the right form. It is small and spares vellum. His frown deepened. I felt he knew I was right but didn't want to agree. But he said, Very well. But while you are here, I'd like you to be instructed in the proper way. I thanked him. The next day a monk named Brother Edgar, a bony, emaciated man with a wrinkled scalp, stood over me as I began to copy the psalm again. Why do you use your left hand? he whispered. Because I'm left-handed, I said rather lightly. Suddenly the straight edge cracked against my knuckles. Not here you aren't. Perhaps he thought I was disrespectful in the way I answered. Perhaps I was, but the stick hurt. I struggled to use the quill with my right hand. Eventually, I learned to use the Carl Court script with my left and the Scott script with my right. I should have been grateful for the instruction. But who ever is grateful for instruction? I returned to the abbot after several days of this practice. He was satisfied. He had a wax tablet with a letter written on it to the abbot of Bobbio, which he asked me to copy onto vellum. I took it back to the scriptorium and spent the day on it. When I started to write, I found a mistake in his Latin. I stopped and read it over. There were a few more mistakes. I corrected them as I scribed the new letter. At the end of the day, I brought it to him to sign and seal. He glanced at it, then stopped and perused it. You have made mistakes, he said. I felt my heart beat faster. I didn't think about having to tell him the mistakes were his. Dear father, dear father, I corrected some minor errors. You are very busy and wrote hurriedly. In my leisure I was able to correct them. He sucked in his lips and stared at me, drew in his breath to speak, and didn't. He dropped the letter on the desk. You have not confessed yet. You require an amshara. 
Brother Edgar will serve. Please speak with him. I will tell him to make sure he doesn't forget. Now it was my turn to stare. My first knowledge of Brother Edgar was the blow to my knuckles. You may go. I bowed and left. There was no more scribing for me. I spent the next day bored, feeling confined. After our meal, Brother Edgar approached me. We went to the edge of the bluff that overlooks the sea. The sun was bright on the water. Green, the color of Frankish glass. The rest of the world seemed far away over the sea. And I on this journey would be going further and further away from the world, to an even more remote place. I had been mostly silent my week there. I longed to talk about all I had seen and done. Brother Edgar looked at me through narrow eyes. Could I tell him of snow-clad mountains that disappeared into the clouds? Of cities dark and teeming with rats and urchins? Of bright marble mosaics of flowers and vines and real flowers that smelled like paradise? Well, brother, he said, his thin lips almost smiling a cruel smile. He expected to hear my sins. It was the elephant's fault that Brother Derek died, but I'm glad I knew him the short time he was well. Brother Edgar's eyes closed. That is well, but your confession? I gazed again at the sea. The sun beckoned me back to the desert where I ate sweet brown dates and almonds. I tried to think of my sins. A golden eagle launched from a nearby tree and swept into view, soaring across the waves. And then it flooded me, and it was my sin. I hadn't expected it, to know the sin in my heart. My mouth filled with spit. The tears came suddenly. I felt hot and wet. I love the world. I love this world too much. I could say no more. Every emotion choked me. Brother Edgar put his hand over mine, which was shaking. You are punished enough, he said. I felt ready to speak and tell him everything, but he turned and walked away, leaving me alone on the shore, wiping away my tears in the bright sun of the day. It turned out my scribing there wasn't quite done. The next day the abbot sent for me. He cleared his throat and motioned for me to stand, saying, Your beloved abbot Brezel has died on Iona. I have just received a letter from Brother Connachta. It was long delayed. I crossed myself and bowed my head. I'd like you to carry my response to your brothers there, if you would be so kind. He dictated a letter of loving sorrow, and I scribed it, wondering as I did so that they would receive this letter written by my own hand. I was careful to alter nothing. The abbot was eager for me to return to Iona with his message. I would take about three days to walk to the coast, stopping on the way to spend a night with the local king. Imagine my surprise when I arrived at the strong farm to find an acquaintance of mine. The king's son was Terrain, who had been a student at Iona. I only knew him slightly, and it had been for four years. But we rejoiced in becoming reacquainted, and I had arrived in time for his wedding feast. The ale flowed and the meat was plentiful. Terrain had me sit right by his side, his lovely bride on the other. 
We sat and he clapped me on the back ever with a joke in my ear. As the night grew late and the singing died down, I rested in the hall of the great house. Some of the guests shook noisemakers and beat drums to drown off the sound of the wedding night's consummation. The rattles and drums beat into my head. As I tried to sleep after my wearying journey, I couldn't help but think of all I was giving up. It would be fine to be a chief and live in a fine home with rugs and gold plate. After we had all feasted for another day, Terrain took me to his stable. Isn't he fine? he asked, slapping a beautiful black steed on the rump. I agreed it was. They're my pride. Nothing finer than a great horse. You will ride him to the coast with some of my things. I tried to protest, but he wouldn't hear of it. He loved his horses, and he loved to be generous. I had never seen a man so happy. At the west coast, the Thanes left me once a fishing boat had been secured, thanks to Turen's silver, to take me to Mull. It took all day to cross the sea, and a fine rain mingled with the spray. I huddled under a blanket, rocking as the speedy boat made good time. There was a monastery where I could spend the night on Mull, a bare, hard place with dry food and watery ale, a hard bed, and thin monks chanting in a soft, pleading moan for deliverance. I thought of the feast I had just come from, and the riot of singing. The monks sang of joy, but it did not seem to be a joyful place. But the monks did their best, and two of them walked me to the last coast. The two were silent except for chanting when the hour seemed right, and I felt lonely in their company. And then we arrived on the beach across from Iona. After four years, it was strange to see it lying in the water, such a small place so still and ageless. Only a few yards offshore to my right was the Island of Women, where by now Edith must be wed and perhaps even gone to some new place. There was no lump in my throat at the thought. It didn't seem I was meant to marry her. I had decided long ago that I am prone to fall in love with every woman I meet. And for that reason, perhaps I should never wed. Yet still, perhaps I could. And perhaps I could find a way to have land and be like Terrain with his horses and Mary Bride. But I was landless, lordless. I had no cattle, and no opportunity. I thought of all this in a few seconds, only repeating thoughts I had been having some while. I called over to Iona for a boat. I heard an answering call. In about half an hour, two monks rode onto the beach to fetch me across, and I was home on Iona. To be continued. If you enjoy Continuous Stream, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. For other ways to support the show, please see the show notes or visit www.continuousstream.com. Thanks for listening.